Do you want to be perfectly safe? Do you want to guarantee your own life, foretell the future, and control your world? Do you want to become a god? Then it's simple. Just follow this method. Step one, believe a lie. Step two, practice some occult method that the real god forbids. Step three, eh? Step four, um, profit. Of course, this kind of idolatrous witchcraft doesn't work in reality. It cannot fulfill its own promise. But this practice also isn't usually the same thing as reading a fantasy novel that has magic, people, or things in it. But what if Christians can't tell these things apart? Or what if someone feels genuinely tempted by the association they have between occult magic that God forbids and fictional magic that you might enjoy? Welcome back to Fantastical Truth. This is part two of our fictional magic series here on the podcast from Lorehaven. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, the publisher of Lorehaven, and also the co-author of a book that's just been out this fall called The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. And I'm Zachary Russell. I was known as Zach the Gray, but now I am known as Zach the White. That's nothing to do with my hair, which has lost all of its color, but this is episode 38, Should Christians Enjoy Fantasy with Fictional Magic? This is part two. So if you're listening to this for the first time, that's great. Welcome. Uh, We also have a part one that you can listen to before or after this, whatever you decide. Part one is essential listening either way. Uh, This episode jumps into more of the applications from that discussion. But in that discussion, we actually surveyed uh, the most notable text from Scripture about occult magic, the stuff that God forbid for his people way back when and still forbids for his people now. That text does apply to us now, even if things have changed a little bit between the Old and New Covenants. It's necessary to go through those scriptures before we jump to, well, what does that mean for us today? So this is the application one, and that's the uh, more exegetical one, at least as best we can do. Definitely listen to that. But if you're ready, we are ready now to go into the the applications, those questions about the differences between what God forbids and what we actually get to do as fantasy fans. Zach, are you ready for that uh, concession stand? We've got a few smaller sugary concessions to serve up uh, before we delve into the applications, assuming that you've already heard the part one. So yeah, let's talk about this term right away, Stephen, uh, white magic from Christian circles. What, What do we mean by that? Well, when I read the term white magic, and I've used it before in some of my articles, I assume that this is meaning, oh, this is a good magic. You know, black magic is the bad stuff uh, that you use to call down curses or torture somebody or, you know, any of the forbidden uh, spells in the Harry Potter universe. That's, that's dark magic, but the white magic, you know, that's, uh, that's friendly. There's, uh, there's good behind that. There's a, there's a good motive there. Well, The problem being that at least in Christian circles uh, that I've seen, people can use spells or methods or some kind of formula that they think is from the Bible. And ultimately, this can become a kind of a a kind of white magic to keep out the black magic. But ultimately, either one of those can actually be based in idolatry, which uh, tends to be a problem. And the reason why, by the way, and this is really the first concession the reason why in the last episode and this one is that, at least for me in particular, to remember instances of this among Christians, that's mainly just because that's my area of familiarity. 
unlike others, I didn't grow up believing in the new age stuff. I, I can't recall ever practicing anything occult. Lots of other Christians have done this before, sometimes before they got saved. So when I say these, uh, these accounts, uh, either in this episode or the previous one, uh, it's not that I'm doing the blame the church first thing. <laughs> Lord knows there's enough of that going on. The Holy Spirit is not useless. Most Christians, I would say, in the Church of Jesus Christ know better than to attempt this kind of soft magic approach. The only reason why I mention those instances is because I've seen those more often, just because I, I'm a, I feel a little sheltered sometimes. More often, to be sure, I think it's actually non-Christians who are practicing magic in the real world. Something like the occult, uh, even if it's as simple as a prayer to nothing to get that parking space, you know, something like that. Like, like a superstition, basically. Exactly. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that the Holy Spirit is not uh, lying down on the job. He may be slower to change people than we would like, but obviously he knows better. So I'm content yeah. to uh, let him do his work, but I, but I know that he is doing it. And even Christians who have fallen into those habits are eventually, eventually that's going to be fixed and that's okay. You know, last time we talked about fortune cookies that I, uh, I had a lot of superstitions growing up and fortune cookies were one of them. And then I tried to sort of baptize it and be like, well, maybe, maybe God meant for me to open this fortune cookie today. And it's got something that I need to hear because I wasn't really reading the Bible for a while as a young Christian. But Stephen, something came to mind after that episode. I made a friend, uh, somewhere around 20 years ago. And I said, you know, how do you read the Bible? And he said, well, I just kind of open the Bible randomly and I just pick a part and then I just read that chapter. And I was like, well, okay, that's, that's very interesting. So why do you do that? And he's like, well, I just think that, that God is in control of fate and destiny and chance. And so I just, that's what I think he has ordained for me to read that day. And we got to talking about it and eventually we're like, you know, maybe we should take a more organized approach. And that just feels so weird. It almost like kind of kills the mood of just like, well, take a plan. Like, why not be more mystical about it? Why not be more, have a more interesting approach? And so maybe that's kind of what you're talking about. It is. God has made us embodied people. He works through those very common humdrum things like studying and learning definitions of words, and then reading a text from the very beginning to the very end, rather than a kind of magical approach where you hum gently to yourself and you close your eyes, and you open your Bible, and then you read the first thing your finger falls upon. That uh, may be well-intended, but it is also uh, uh, foolish. I think it would fall under the Apostle Paul's warnings in the New Testament to have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths and fables. And some translations even use the antiquated phrase, old wives' tales. Uh, no particular blame on old wives. This can <laughs> happen to young husbands. It can happen to any Christian. Definitions matter. And uh, it also matters, by the way, how we define the phrase fictional magic versus the occult magic. Just as in our last episode, whenever we use the phrase fictional magic, we're talking about the stuff that you find in stories that probably doesn't work in the real world. Occult magic is the stuff that God has forbidden because it is based on pride and idolatry and the desire to control your world as if you were a god yourself. That is occult stuff. That's idolatry. That's paganism. And it is dangerous. This is not a trivial concern. These impulses are constantly in us. Even good Christians indwelled by the Holy Spirit are constantly trying to throw out these idolatrous impulses. How much more so for someone 
who was trapped in actual systematized occult paganism or a religious movement or something like that. This is real serious stuff. And that's why it matters that we disentangle it from suspicions about a story or a fictional work uh, that has something called magic, but may not be the actual occult that the Bible condemns. I grew up, Stephen, with a literal cartoon version of a Christian, which was Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. And I, I keep thinking of this episode where he's talking to someone and then someone uh, shoots at him and then he, he gets hit and he falls down and he uh, stands back up and he's like, wow, it's a good thing I always carry a Bible next to my heart. And then he gets shot again and then he stands up again and he's like, wow, it's a good thing I was wearing my true cross necklace today. And then he's like, hmm, maybe I should, uh, maybe I should get out of here now. <laughs> well, see, I'm th- I thought you were going to mention the episode. Actually, I haven't seen the full episode. Just seen the clip where Ned Flanders is uh, reading a book. I think, I think it actually is uh, uh, supposed to be a Harry Potter book, uh, but he's, uh, he's not reading it right uh, to his little son. And he says, and then Harry Potter and all his friends went straight to hell for practicing witchcraft. <laughs> and the little kid says, yay. And then they just throw it in the fire. <laughs> okay that's that's fair you know right. and like it's more of a restatement of reality for some christians uh, rather than even a spoof right there it's just absurd when you see it or is it though because maybe you shouldn't read the harry potter books if they wound your conscience and the fact that some believers have tender consciences and particular spiritual weaknesses has to be something that we keep in mind as we move into this next phase of our fictional magic exploration. All right, so let's go to our first section here. Fictional magic may or may not provoke these temptations in readers. So we have to ask, you know, is, is fictional magic that we read in Harry Potter and and even oh, even in Narnia, is that like occult magic that people practice in the real world? Well, for this, we do need to presume uh, that uh, the listeners have listened to part one of this discussion, which I definitely recommend you go back to if you haven't already. We focused on Deuteronomy 18, but there's also secondary applications to the other scriptural texts, uh, as in the New Testament, where they're warning against sorcery and books of magic and things like that. But it's helpful to note what God doesn't specifically warn against in those texts. Do the following concepts, for example, fit into that biblical category of actual occult practice based in pride, based in idolatry, the desire to be like God, or do they come from popular culture, historic folklore, or plain traditions from stories? And I'll list a few items here, whimsical flying broomsticks or cauldrons and potions that have magical effects. What about wizards like Gandalf the Grey slash White who wear pointy hats and dress in long robes? Uh, What about the idea of disappearing from one place to appear almost instantly in another place? Uh, Is that something God has forbidden? I don't think that even works in the real world. So why would you forbid wanting to do that? Uh, If you want to do that for an idolatrous reason, then that's another issue. What about creatures, particularly the ones you see on lawns this time of year in October, like uh, werewolves or trolls or centaurs or elves? goblins and dragons or the one in the uh, front yard of the house down the road from me Zaka. it's a uh, it's a skeleton mermaid but the fin mm. is made out of skeleton and I, i'm not sure that that's how mermaid physiological uh, <laughs> physiology works <laughs> that none of these i'd say not not these imaginations they do not automatically not automatically count as the practices that god warns against 
Reading and imagining these things does not automatically count as doing divination or practicing idolatry. Technically, though, even if you read a book in which a character says, I reject God, therefore I want to be God, I am going to do this pagan thing, and then you read a description of them doing that, even reading that description would not automatically count as you committing sin, even if it was really detailed. Could a strong Christian read about this? Could they read a real occult textbook and not sin? Notice I say a strong Christian. Yes, I think a Christian who is not unduly tempted to do those things could do that. I might carefully put myself in this category of the many things I struggle with. That's just not one of them. But other Christians are very different, and we have to be very sensitive to their needs. It's just also important to clarify that not everyone is like a Christian who's tender in that area. There may be Christians who are stronger in that area just because of how they were raised, or maybe they've been there, done that, and now it's all boring to them, and, or, or, or they've just managed to find victory in that area thanks to the Holy Spirit. It's just important to know that your mileage may vary as a Christian, and we have to love and respect one another and talk about this stuff openly, especially when it comes to fantasy fiction. Yeah, back in episode 19, we had a panel of Christian authors that spoke at a Realm Makers conference, and it was about how do we stay sensitive to readers when we're dealing with PG-13 or, you know, <laughs> or harder content that's in fiction. And I thought Brent Weeks made a really good point that applies to this episode. He said, you know, imagine you are a stenographer in a court case, and you're having to type down something really gruesome that happened, like a crime that happened that someone is reporting you know, to the court, like giving testimony about, or imagine that you are the person giving that testimony to the court and you're having to, you know, say the exact swear words that the defendant said or describe, you know, how he murdered someone or whatever. And his point was, if you are that stenographer or that person on the witness stand, you're not committing a crime or you're not committing a sin by recounting those crimes or those sins. And so that, that's sort of how he makes sense of it in terms of what he writes because he writes things with with a lot of hard content a lot of swear words and whatnot and so i wonder if that sort of applies to this topic Stephen. that if you're an author if you're a reader you're reading writing about people doing magic and 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 let's just say and in that story it's it's a sin well does that does that make it wrong for you to read about in the same way that a stenographer would be wrong i I don't think so I think it's sort of a, a neutral territory here. And it can, like you said, it can tempt people, but it, not necessarily. Yeah, it does relate to the motive of the heart and the tenderness of the conscience. For example, I have not yet read a fantasy by Brent Weeks, who is a professing Christian author and who said some really great stuff at that conference, by the way. He was the keynote speaker. So I, I know that he has thought long and hard about these things, even though he's a very popular author of epic, you know, very thick fantasy novels. Uh, very well acclaimed as far as I know. I could probably read his books, which are, however, full of vulgarity, uh, profanity. He uses the bad words in his book, you know, and and the reason why he does that is pretty close to the that's how real people talk uh, line, which, you know, there's that's not a total lie. But for me, I, I could read that and probably not sin any more than usual. However, I've, as I've said in previous podcast episodes, I have to be careful when listening the characters say those words, particularly in anger, uh, because that is something that I struggle with. And I'm, I'm trying to be very free with that <laughs> just in case, you know, anybody out there is able to help me with this goal. Uh, it's not just I want to clean my language and speak cleanly and do everything clean, clean, clean. It's like, no, I know that for me, 
the temptation to use those words in moments of anger. And then the words, have, there's a feedback loop between action and motive. And so hearing myself, you know, and then eh, I could go a little bit too deep into that. But I'm trying to confess, really, because I, in, on the one hand, I can say, you know, I can read about an evil character doing an idolatrous act of magic. You know, if it's something totally fictional or if it's a, an actual practice, God forbids, I can read that and not sit any more than usual. Uh, but I, I can't do the thing with, uh, with videos with a whole lot of bad words. They, they encourage the they do encourage me to sin more than usual. But things in the Bible and in reality do not always lead to automatic sin. And I think the word automatic is super important. And we need to explore that briefly because for some people, they're just things do not automatically tempt us to that sin. Not even the things that we feel very strongly are associated with the evil. And it helps me to look around the world and see examples like we've been talking about. And it kind of breaks down when you push at it. Because especially now in a, a increasingly anti-Christian society, some people think that the Bible equals automatic sin, but it is not, uh, not even a little. And some people used to think that if you got the, the internet or a new technology like TV or even the radio, well, something like that would automatically make you sin. And, and yet here we are. You can't put blame for sin on a thing. And I think the only thing that comes close to that automatic sin cause is pornography. It is such a sensitive area for a lot of people. Certainly a lot of men could almost blame the thing there. And it would make sense if you did, even if it's not technically correct, the sin comes from the heart. Let me go back to something you just said a minute ago. When you said some people think the Bible equals automatic sin or evil, what, what did you mean by that? And who, which people are you talking about? Now, increasingly, skeptics of Christianity who don't just think, well, that's very well and good for you to believe the great sky god, but I, I'm not going to do that. So we'll just maintain our distances. In, increasingly, people are saying, no, Christian, what you believe is actually evil. So you, you can't just uh, say, well, that person associates the Bible with evil. So therefore the Bible must be evil. Like that, that's not how we treat the blame of sin in particular objects. So like the, the kind of person that would say, oh, well, the Bible endorsed slavery. Therefore the Bible is evil. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Yeah. It's an example that we can agree is, is not accurate. At least Christians can agree that it's right. not accurate. And then I would apply that then to some of the assumptions of what Christians have Oh, that thing uh, makes the people I know sin, so that thing must be bad. The whole idea of just blaming something because you're not sure or that you think that there's evil associated with it. I, I heard the story back in college. It was a, um, a missionary that was involved or that, that was, was re recounting a, um, another missionary story from Ecuador. And this other person had, had been the person that founded the HCJB missionary radio station and this is way back in the uh, earlier in the 20th century and uh, the, the founder of this radio station apparently had to overcome these objections by his sending church that said well we know that satan is the prince of the power of the air and if the if, so if a radio broadcast is going through the air you know satan is gonna take it over or something also try not to breathe <laughs> right so this you know this is back when uh radio was a relatively new thing and so look you, you can understand people being a little skeptical of the new technology but th that's always the case isn't it I, I don't think it's exactly the same thing but you know you mentioned the internet people thought oh, well the internet is just going to be an evil thing and sure there's plenty of evil and there's 
plenty of dark corners of the internet and not just on the dark web, you know, just the, a lot of people have been talking about this uh, documentary called the social dilemma about how just the ordinary social media that we, that we all enjoy is sort of harmful to us and it's polarizing us. And so, yeah, but again, you can't just blame that on a social media company. You can't just blame that on your computer or your internet connection. It comes from the heart. And so that that's the bigger thing you got to deal with. Right. And that is not by any means an excuse. Oh, well, it's from the heart. You can't help it. No, it is actually worse. Uh, it's a similar rhetorical technique to when Jesus said, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder your brother. And he says, well, I say, if you've even called your brother a filthy name or hated him in your heart, then you're basically guilty of murder. So the problem is actually way more systematic than you ever thought. I've tried to be, by the way, uh, I've tried to avoid being too snarky when people onto Facebook will say something against fantasy, like, oh, that's that's evil. There's there's magic in it. You know, anything that's called magic must be bad. Deuteronomy 18, et cetera. And those are the thoughtful responses. You know, the other ones are just more reactionary and, and just a lot of emotion, a lot of heat and not a lot of light from actual biblical understanding. And it's just very difficult to respond to that and just take it apart with one sentence saying you are on Facebook. You were saying this to me on Facebook as if uh, <laughs> the only thing is exempt from the principle you're saying is social media. Like if we're going to talk about corruption or use of a good thing or abuse of a good thing for idolatrous ends, then that discussion probably these days needs to start with social media. It certainly isn't limited to fantasy. The difficulty, of course, that we run into here is that maybe everyone listening to this episode today is, is nodding their heads. They're all fantasy fans. You've read along with Deuteronomy 18. Uh, you think we're on the right track here. But the difficulty there is that many Christians do disagree, and they are part of our spiritual family, and we not only should live with them, but in Christ we are required to live with them and love them and serve them maybe talk about these things, but sometimes maybe walk away from a discussion about these things, hopefully trying to live peaceably with them. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to discuss, okay, say you're in a church or a family with folks who disagree about fictional magic. They, they won't hear any arguments about it. They insist it's the same thing as the occult magic that God has forbidden. How do we respond to these folks? That gets challenging. Well, there is a certain Disney movie, Stephen, that I think um, brings the issue of, of magic up, and it's it's the wonderful story of Frozen. Th this is a big thing parents talk about: is what about the magic in Frozen? But I I think there's something else about Frozen you want to talk about. I have such a a, a love hate relationship, except it's kind of all hate. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't hate unless it's the devil, and then it's okay. Uh, no, <clears throat> I am one of those people who tries not to be snarky about it again, but I let's uh, let's just suppose let's uh, let's make myself the victim of this little uh, parable here. Let's suppose that I think the song Let It Go is evil. After all, I could argue that by itself the song Let It Go, apart from the story, encourages that attitude of vengefulness and idolatry. It's all about uh, cutting loose the shackles of expectations and being free she sings i'm free let's see how much my powers grow for my own amusement and enjoyment with really no 
uh, mind about others. And let us say that I, because reasons, say, well, <clears throat> this song is a bad song. No one can listen to this song without sinning. No one. I'm pretty sure this is a bad song. If you listen to it, you're going to sin one way or another. It's automatic. Let's say then you, other Christian, a spiritual family member, comes along and says, actually, I can listen to that song without sinning. I don't sin any more than usual when Let It Go comes on the radio. I can sing along. My kids sing along. Doesn't bother me. In fact, we have a great time and hopefully glorify Jesus by having a family relationship built like that. Well, at that point, if I've heard the other Christians say this to me, I have a choice. And it is a choice with only two options. Option one is I can listen to this person and be challenged to think differently about my original claim. Or I can think that that person is deceived. Even worse, I can go further in that, well, that person is lying to themselves. And I can say, I must be the super Christian here. They're the carnal Christian. Or further on that same route, I can say that person is lying to themselves on purpose because they feel guilty about their sin. My righteous standard, my higher calling has provoked in them a guilty reaction and they want to now cover up their compromise. The question is, do I trust this person? Am I going to accept their claim or am I going to risk committing actual sin by calling them a liar and a moral compromiser who doesn't care about holiness? This is hard stuff, yet it is the real conflict that we face when one Christian comes along and says, you can't do that without sinning. And then another Christian says, oh, actually, I just did. And I usually do that. The first Christian then has a choice. Are they going to back off or are they going to dig in and risk committing that actual sin of slander? You know, the approach I take, uh, I'll, I'll put myself in the driver's seat or the hot seat or whatever here is, that, so first of all, I think you've got the parent vote and <laughs> you've got, you've got all the parents on your side who are like, I hate that song. I've heard it a million times. So I think a lot of people can relate to just not liking that song, but I, I think there's a better approach even just with, with this is look at the rest of the story and what does Elsa do as a result of that song? Well, she kind of ruins everyone's life. <laughs> You know, so her liberation or freedom or license, whatever you want to call it, it has very harmful effects on other people. And so you have to look at the story as a whole and that that's kind of the song of the villain. And I think actually the, the character of Elsa was supposed to be a villain and then maybe they changed it. My daughters would probably know more about this. They've read a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. You know, even when you just have a discussion about it, it I, I think you can sort of find common ground of like, well, was that was that song really a good song to sing? You know, what uh, did that really lead to good things? Even just talking about the story and sort of interpreting the story, not not really deconstructing the story, but just talking through the rest of the story, you can find some ways to kind of meet people eye to eye. Well, you can, and then hopefully with a Christian who would judge you for liking a story like that, you know, maybe it's a simple matter of needing to communicate freely and openly about this, just like you did, Zach, there. That was a very winsome reminder that a story is more than the sum of its parts, and you can't pick out one piece of it, you know, like an atheist pulling the most terrible story out of the Bible and saying, how can you call this the holy word of God? We ourselves are more than the sum of our parts. You cannot isolate a single moment and then judge that person, condemn them forever because of that single bad decision uh, they may have made. At the same time, 
some fantasy fans, uh, readers or watchers of uh, fantastical stories, really do seem tempted by stuff that doesn't tempt us personally. And uh, Christians who are in uh, particular churches, uh, particularly with you know old uh, older members or members of a different generation, or maybe from a different area of the country, or maybe a different country altogether. Uh, we're going to have differences about these matters. It is just inevitable when you have a gospel that's supposed to go to every tribe and tongue and people and nation and ethnicity and age group and uh, both sexes, this is going to happen. You know, one example here, I would say that Christians who we might call boomers, they don't have the same struggles as millennials or the next generation after millennials, which I guess we're all required now to call Gen Z or Zoomers or Zoomers, whatever. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think some of that is just people trying to come up with fun things to say uh, that liven up the what would otherwise be a very boring uh, academical field there that uh, just for the sake of easier communication, I guess we'll have to go along with that. But at the same time, like especially in an election year, plenty of younger Christians, I would say, can rightly, and I hope gently and graciously, criticize boomers uh, for buying into particular popular cultural views about politics that are just unhelpful, that are just very shallow. Uh, there's not a lot of media discernment among some boomers, but millennials also have different problems with media discernment and being tempted by things that they see. Yeah, it so sounds kind of like we we need each other, right? And uh of course, I, I criticize both boomers and millennials from the safe distance of being uh, sort of in between. You know, I'm, I'm the uh, the zennial micro generation or generation X-wing is my favorite way of saying it. The, the people born during the uh, Star Wars years. Oh, that's better. But, I like generation yeah. X-wing. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> there you go. But, you know, there, there's, a, there's a trend I've noticed, Stephen, in that baby boomers tend to want to cancel things that are heretical. Uh, you know, so any, anything, and I'm, I'm talking here of Christians. They want to get rid of things that are that, that seem obviously bad on their face, that that seem anti-God, anti, whatever. Uh, millennials, however, want to cancel things that are offensive or problematic. And so, here's an example: Harry Potter. There's people that want to cancel Harry Potter because of the magic in it, like we've already talked about. But there's also people that want to cancel Harry Potter because. Oh, J.K. Rowling has, has said some problematic things. Their words, not ours. I right, stand with right. J.K. Rowling personally, at <laughs> least on this regard. She's being yeah. surprisingly courageous, and I thank God for that. Right. So are, are they both right? Are they both wrong? I, it's almost like they're speaking different languages. So one set of concerns is, well, this is offensive to a biblical worldview, and others might say, well, this is offensive to this person over here. and those could both be true at the same time, but I also feel like they're kind of beside the point at the same time. True. Cause we're, and, talk, we're talking about fiction. Right. Yeah. And it, and it, and, and it's also contributes to the unfortunate problem of both sides or both generations just kind of yelling at each other and often for the similar motive, you know, let's say, you know, a lot of generalities here, folks, but the boomer Christians are yelling at the millennials. You can't do that. It's a bad witness to the world. And the millennials are yelling at the older Christians. You can't do that. It's a bad witness to the world. And the prime motive becomes bad witness to the world. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How are we defining the world there? I think, I think the world is a projection. I think the world sometimes means my friends or the cool people that I think would like to be, <laughs> that I would like them to be my friends. 
Uh, sometimes that, that, that little swap can happen in our phrasing and we don't even know it. Well, and here's my soapbox, Stephen. Th- this whole motivation a lot of people have, I'm just going to get on my, my preacher soapbox here. This motivation of, I don't want to be a bad witness to the world is a good motivation, but you can't get there by <laughs> sort of distancing yourself from other believers because Jesus literally said in John 17 that the way that the church will be believed, the way that Jesus will be known as the Son of God is by the love that Christians have for one another. You can't be a good witness to the world while trying to split the church in half. No, certainly not. And yet at the same time, there can be some very frustrating behaviors among Christians who I think, as we record this, younger Christians might consider the establishment. For example, uh, one of the better articles I've, I've read um, at Christ and Pop Culture was by Alan Noble, which uh, brought up a little a little challenge, the fact that even safe and family-friendly stuff uh, can be a stumbling block to some younger Christians or people who are young who look at the church and go, well, why are you only talking about safe, family-friendly stuff? Like, my world is not safe and family-friendly. I guess the gospel is not for me. Uh, young folks, for example, can also stumble more over this Christian culture than they ever did with fictional magic in the stories, whereas older Christians may be perfectly fine with the uh, clean, G-rated, uh, saccharine Christian culture stuff or evangelical culture and uh, then stumble all over the place when it comes to fictional magic. So upshot here is that it's not just about whether or not that thing you like is a stumbling block at all. There are many different kinds of stumbling blocks in different directions, and we're all wearing different kinds of shoes, and we all walk at different paces, and one way or another, we're going to stumble over different kinds of stumbling blocks. And that phrase, of course, stumbling block, comes from the New Testament, which is the letters that Paul wrote and others are some of the best resources we have, the prime resource, obviously, for the Christian about how we understand what is and isn't a stumbling block, and then what do you do in those sensitive situations where someone stumbles over it, not meaning that they got offended, not meaning that they made an association between that and something actual evil, but does that thing actually cause that person to sin? That's observational, all the stuff that we've been saying now, uh, but it is, I think, based in biblical truth applied to our, our modern times about the strong versus the weak and then kind of the other folks in between who think they've got that strong, weak thing down, uh, but really are substituting their own personal offenses. Yeah, I think it's always important to to distinguish between opinions and convictions. Convictions are the the things you'd bet your life on, whereas opinions are what you'd bet your lunch on, <laughs> what you bet a few bucks on. Oh yeah, at least one translation specifically, I think it's in Romans 14, as the Apostle Paul says, discourages believers, do not reject your brother to quarrel over opinions. And that's the right. word that's used in that translation. We're going to include uh, the two texts in the show notes, by the way, uh, Romans 14, uh, 1 through 3 and 5 through 6 and 1 Corinthians 8, because those are key texts, even though we're not going to read and get into all of those here in this discussion. So Stephen, what do we do at the gray areas, the, the kind of stuff that tempts some but not others? Yeah, that could be a whole episode on its own. And I would just encourage finding a really great Christian resource about these texts. Some Christians have called these uh, scruples. Uh, some have called them uh, using an, a Greek word called adiaphora or disputable matters. That's the stuff that tempts some Christians to sin, but not others. 
the phrase that the apostle Paul uses in the uh, letter to the Corinthians is meat sacrificed to idols, uh, which is a little bit different uh, from the issues in Romans, which is about holidays and whether or not you should eat certain foods. The meat sacrificed to idols had a stigma attached to it. This meat has been offered in a pagan temple to an idol and Christians who weren't from that background or who weren't bothered by that could eat the meat without a challenge to their conscience. But Christians who, for whatever reason or another, made the association between that meat and the pagan ceremony would be tempted to sin, or they would look at the other Christian who was eating it without a problem and go, maybe he's sinning. And then they would look down at their plate and go, well, I guess I can just go ahead and do that too, even if it's sinning. And then their consciences were hurt. To them, it was a sin. And so it required a public address by the Apostle Paul in the letter to discuss those issues and even encourage Christians who had freedom of conscience to eat the meat. Maybe they need to put it away until we get this thing sorted out. But the Apostle Paul is very clear in these texts. Than when he says that the people who are tempted by the thing that isn't actually sin, but is a sin to them, he uses the words weaker. And then those who aren't so tempted, he uses the word stronger. Uh, Paul talks about uh, these, uh, these issues in both Romans and 1 Corinthians. And he doesn't speak, by the way, about the stronger folks having a conviction, uh, or he definitely doesn't speak about the weaker folks uh, having some kind of higher spiritual standard because they can't handle as much. And when he says weaker, that means weaker, meaning you must get stronger. Uh, that is implicit there as uh, that it would be better if they were stronger, but if they're not, then those who are stronger need to love them and serve them and not by yelling at them for being legalistic or yelling at them for being weak. Uh, that's not what we do to one another. Instead, it is the strong who need to lead and maybe even sacrifice, maybe even put away the meat sacrifice to idols just to try to love and support that person, not who's offended, but who is actually tempted by the Christian enjoying the thing, even if the Christian who's enjoying it is not sinning, at least not any more than usual. You know, that you brought up a point, Stephen, I never thought about, which is that when Paul labels people as the stronger or the weaker brother, he's not saying if you're weak, that's a permanent category you're in. You know, that that is a temporary category. And yep. so the point is to get stronger. It's not to just make that your identity that I'm a weaker brother or whatever. But you're right in that the, you know, the word for both groups is charity. Uh, because we're not all the same. We're not all going to be tempted the same ways. And so we we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't make assumptions about other people about, well, how can they watch this when obviously you know, or how can they read that when obviously we have to have grace with each other. We have to assume the best about one another, but you're right. I, I think it comes down to making sacrifices for each other. And it's not saying that, look, if, if you're tempted by a certain kind of book that you, it's, it's not saying you should get in a book club and make a sacrifice <laughs> to read for your friends, to read something that is going to tempt you. Well, I don't, I don't think that's the right way either. But yeah, I, I think that it really is addressing the people that aren't tempted to sin by certain things that we have to look out for each other, essentially. Absolutely. And to borrow an example from, again, it's very trending right now, and perhaps we can expand on this in a future episode. 
some Christians, particularly younger Christians, are experiencing this problem when it comes to patriotic symbols, uh, uh, flags or, or symbols or you know, defenses of capitalism or particular uh, rights in the uh, Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution. They associate these things with idols, and then they will go out and say, you, older Christian, who wave the flag or who like fireworks and hot dogs, you are sinning because you are unaware of the evils in this country's past and you need to repent of your idolatry. That is a false judgment and it has nothing to do with the fault, the, um, the strong or the weak. Uh, it's someone who has associated something that is not a sin with sin. Now the older Christian may be using those things to sin, but it would be just as wrong to condemn them as if they are automatically guilty of sin as it would be to condemn the younger Christian who likes a story that has some magic in it. These issues are everywhere, everywhere. And I think those who are uh, strong in a particular area, like let's say, you know, in, in my case, like I'm, I'm not even a particularly older Christian, at least I hope not, uh, but I would want to follow the Apostle Paul's command not to let anything that you regard as good be called a sin. We need to link that verse in the show notes as well. In this case, I would say, yes, you know, this nation has had some terrible things in its past, but the flag stands for all of the good things. You yourself, younger Christian, can empathize with that if you try. You need to use a little imagination and compare to that Netflix show or whatever it is that you like because of the good things. You know, you don't like it because of the bad things. Do you? And then the younger Christian might be able to teach me about something that, you know, I thought was automatically evil. And yes, we need each other. You know, we need to learn from each other about why you like that thing. Uh, we need to testify, especially if we are trying to be discerning by enjoying that thing. Uh, we need to show how we are trying to glorify Christ by enjoying that thing. And at this point, I can say that Christian fantasy fans need to be prepared to give an answer for how they glorify Christ with fictional magic even while we care for family and other fans that we know uh, who still struggle with confusing fictional magic with occult magic. Okay, so here's an example from my own marriage that I'll, I'll use cautiously. Naomi and I figured out early on in our marriage that we have very different convictions with action movies or war movies. And when we would watch uh, such a movie late at night, I would fall asleep watching it. And this really baffled her. Like, how can you fall asleep? You know, Jack Bauer is uh, is in a bad place. Like, aren't you like worried about what's going to happen? And, you know, and so she would. She's right. You it know, would, it, it would keep her awake. It, it She would have trouble falling asleep and make her anxious. It, and, and it would do the opposite to her. She would lose sleep over it. And for me, I would just I would fall asleep like it's a lullaby. And then so we started to have a lot of discussions like why in the world, how in the world can you fall asleep to that? Like what's wrong with you? And I'm like, well, uh, if, if you've been around a lot of chaos, it, it sort of lulls you to sleep. Like when you, when you see that, but also it's, it's like, I know the good guys are going to win. And so I, I fall asleep knowing that good will overcome evil. And so I don't really need to see the rest of the story. It's fine. And in neither case was one of us sinning. You know, we, we just have different reactions to it just for different reasons. All right. I wouldn't even use, personally, I would not use the word conviction there because as you said right. earlier, a conviction There's is no about conviction. something you would die for. Yeah. It's a preference or even just a personality mm -hmm. difference. Uh, Lacey, my wife and I, we also, I mean, we, we actually share a lot more. I'd say 
90, 95% of stories that one person enjoys, the other one will also enjoy. But it also takes a little bit of training, you know, and there's some stuff that she enjoys that, you know, doesn't fit with my preference. And yet we both have increasingly understood that it is about preferences. It's not about one person trying to sin any more than usual. And we're able, each of us, to explain to the other, this is why I like that thing, even if it doesn't match what your preferences are. Well, let's go to our third section, that we can glorify Christ with fictional magic. Well, let's talk about that, Stephen. Tell, tell me what you think in there. Well, this too could be a podcast all on its own, but you know, any Christian who's a fan of fantasy, who is challenged on that, uh, needs to be in a place, hopefully, whether you're listening to this podcast or getting hold of other resources that show not just the fact that fictional magic is nice or entertaining. Uh, like what? I like my fantasy. It's entertaining. There's nothing wrong with it. It's neutral. It's just a story. Like that kind of stuff is not only uh, a trigger for the other Christian to raise an eyebrow and give you the side eye and go, mm, they're trying to justify sin, aren't they? Not just for that reason would I avoid saying or even thinking those kinds of things deep down because you do need a biblical justification for why you enjoy stories with fictional magic. There are many benefits there that you are denying yourself if you're not articulating them to yourself. If you understand the good effects these can have in your mind and heart and imagination, then by understanding that, they'll get even better for you and you'll be able increasingly automatically to share that joy with the other Christian, even that really legalistic one. And the best scenario, especially if you have good relationships elsewhere, maybe they'll listen to you, you know, and, and maybe you'll find out that they were making a judgment about you and willing to admit that they were wrong, especially if they hear how God has uniquely blessed you through that story, along with the, the Bible uh, elements there, like the holidays and the food and, and the, even the meat sacrifice to idols. Uh, I would add fiction elements. I would say that fiction is basically handled in scripture the same way that these other gifts that people corrupt, but that God has originally put into the world for good, especially including the folklore magic or the, or even those reading about the bad ideas that may tempt some people, but not other people. Uh, and then many people uh, do not associate that, that kind of folklore magic uh, with idols. Instead, and this may take a little while to articulate to a skeptical Christian, but we even associate the folklore magic, the, the fictional magic, with an awakening of our souls to the wonder that Christ has put in the world and this incredible good versus evil narrative in which we are caught up. Magic in fiction, whether or not there's a Christ figure that's putting it into the world or a God figure somewhere back there, can challenge materialism. A couple of episodes ago, uh, we had Mike Duran on who was talking about you know, his struggle with getting rid of the pagan stuff that he was practicing in California in the 70s and such. That was wrong. That was evil. He needed to get rid of that stuff. But at the same time, God worked through that stuff to keep Mike out of materialism. That original desire, there's something more to the world than what I see. That was a good desire. The occult stuff came along and turned it to idolatry. But then Jesus comes along and says, no, that's the idol. It will not fulfill your longing, but I will. That's what Jesus would say to someone who longs for something beyond the reality that we see. Of course, lots of Christian apologists for fantasy will immediately go to Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. And we rightfully say sometimes too much, but it's still true. 
oh, well, you know, the Inklings found their faith uh, revitalized or in Lewis's case, even awakened by these pagan myths. And that's a good place to start. I don't think it's a great place to finish. There's a lot more to say, obviously, about these stories than just, oh, Tolkien and Lewis, end the argument. Uh, But I I personally would say the same. I've been helped grow as a Christian, not just by these stories uh, by Tolkien and Lewis or by other Christian authors, but by non-Christian stories that keep me from becoming materialist, that uh, kind of retranslate the world into this fantasy setting. And then actually is a quote from, I think, John Piper in a 2013 conference that by showing an unreal world, it can actually help illuminate the real world way better than even a work of fiction that's set in the modern world and uh, even a work of nonfiction. Stephen, I think back a few years ago, I was having lunch with a friend of mine and he just kind of made this offhand comment that, oh yeah, my, my wife's guilty pleasure are fantasy novels, like epic fantasy. And I've thought about that phrase ever since, like, is it really a guilty pleasure? Like, is there something to feel guilty about reading a fantasy? And I thought, well, okay. And I, you know, there's, that's a whole other episode. You, you can see why people come to that conclusion. But what I love about fantasy is that it makes the invisible battles we fight every day visible or personified. The different things that we face in the postmodern world or even the modern world, those are turned into characters or forces or whatever that people face in fantasy novels. And there's this famous quote that is misattributed to G.K. Chesterton, which says, quote, fairy tales are more than true. Not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us that the dragons can be beaten, end quote. That's actually in a Neil Gaiman book that where he sort of paraphrased something else that Chesterton said. There's a whole interesting history of that quote. But for me, I think that is one of the benefits is that you see that, okay, good can triumph over evil. You know, monsters can be beaten. Well, what are the monsters in our own lives? What are the evil forces you know, what are the invisible enemies that we face? You know, those, those can be beaten and it sort of gives you that confidence that you can, you can face different things in your life. It does. And for a per person with a different personality or different preferences, you know, maybe they're a little bit more left brain than right brain, you know, maybe for them, uh, most of the spiritual growth in their life has come through nonfiction means, you know, maybe they've never picked up a fiction novel or watched a single fictional TV show in their life that just doesn't work for them. In that case, you would just hope uh, that that person is willing to consider that someone with a different personality is not necessarily sinning. They really are just different. And yet at the same time, it's, it's not enough for us to say that they're, they're a weaker brother. You know, maybe there is just a personality difference there, but there are some people who are weaker as we were mentioning earlier, and we have to take care as Christians and watch out for them. Maybe they're not ready for our info dump about how much God helps us grow and become more like his son and promote holiness through our enjoyment of fantasy. And when I say watch out for them, I don't mean, oh, be on your guard. I mean, just watch out for them. Take care of them. You know, be, be careful. Be sensitive about their needs. Uh, the Apostle Paul is very clear that the kingdom of God isn't first about food or holidays. And I would add here, it's not first about stories. If you like your fandom too much, if you like your stories too much, then they're not ultimately going to make you happy. You are putting second things first. And the first thing to be put first is, of course, Christ Jesus and the gospel. And that's where I go back to what I said earlier. And your mileage may vary, 
And it may be that, you know, you're just careful about what you boast about or whether you wear that, you know, particular geeky t-shirt to the Bible study or whatever. Uh, but we may need to be willing to be you know, discreet about this thing we're enjoying, or maybe even in extreme cases, surrender this freedom if we need to. That's hard. That's hard. Uh, but in order to love people, that may be something that we need to do, at least in particular circumstances. Right. And we're not commanded in scripture to sort of convert people to our preferred form of cultural enjoyment, but to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on you, you know, but to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. You know, that, that is the much bigger thing that we need to work on. Amen. Which does lead to a little bit of a disclaimer, though, because especially when we're talking about something as drastic as you may need to give that thing up. I made reference to this earlier, but it's worth circling back to, I think. When we're talking about weaker brothers, again, we're not talking about someone who's merely offended or someone who might exist out there. I, I began to notice this when I was reviewing these texts that we're talking about in, in Romans and 1 Corinthians. These are actual weaker brothers whom we know who are in front of us or in our circle of friends or family or school or whatever in the present tense. This is not a theoretical construct of a weaker brother out there somewhere who, if he exists, means we need to give up that thing. Uh, someone who comes along and says, well, you need to stop doing what you're doing because even though I'm not a weaker brother, someone might see you doing that and be tempted to sin. I have to draw a line there because I don't know that someone. This is not a situation I'm aware of personally. Like, okay, maybe the person who's telling me that I need to take them into a quiet corner and say, are you the someone? Like, is this a really good friend of yours? Someone, you know, very personally, look, it's okay. I just need to know directly whether this is a real thing or just something you made up, maybe in order to try to feel like a big spiritual hero. Randy Alcorn is one of the best uh, sources on this, just with one article he wrote called what is and isn't a stumbling block. And we'll need to link to that in the show notes. He does a really good job going through the scriptures about stumbling blocks and what they are, what they aren't. And in particular, uh, that, that, some, that person who's always offended, who may be appropriating the biblical warnings about the weaker brother and taking care of them, uh, but isn't actually weak. Uh, they're, they're not actually personally tempted by what you do. Uh, they're just offended. And in some case, they may be trying to weaponize that offense in order to feel powerful or feel like a hero to take care of all those imaginary weaker brothers out there. That's the type of personality that really you should not enable. Like you need to live at peace with that person if possible. Uh, but if they are abusing a biblical text in order to gain spiritual power for themselves, that's not something that we want to go along with. Instead, we do want to go along with the fact that we need to gently challenge a real weaker brother to grow, someone who's actually tempted, even as we care for them, even as we maybe consider sacrificing for them. But the person with godly maturity in a particular area is the person who isn't tempted more than usual. The person who is tempted more than usual, that's the weaker person who we need to love and show care for. Yeah, I consider myself uh, a sensitive, inclusive person. Like if I've done the strengths finder or whatever, and like inclusion, empathy, those are all very important values to me. So I'm very aware of this phenomenon that's going on that you're describing. I have a term for it, which is being vicariously offended. You know, where it's like, oh, well, I'm not personally offended, but someone might be. And you're right. I think it's kind of like a ghost out there that people are worried about. Yeah, it, it sort of does take agency away from other people of saying like, well, they can't really speak up for themselves. So I'm going to speak up for them and say that's going to bother someone or be problematic. You know, that, that's a kind of a buzzword to watch out for when that comes up. 
it's better to just deal with it directly, you know, or just deal with people directly. Let's go to our, our next section here. So how, how does this apply to fictional magic? Let's just bring it back to that and, and readers who are sensitive to those kind of things. Exactly. I mean, we're seeing the broad applications of this and, and even drawing parallels to uh, the new mutation of this, like particularly in uh, you know some of the more uh, justice-oriented uh, extremes, you know, where someone is trying to be the hero and like, well, I'm not offended, but someone else out there might be. And I hereby appoint myself the representative of that victim group, and I condemn what you're doing and tell you to stop. Um, some younger Christians are probably actually well acquainted with that behavior because it has happened in some Christian circles first. But to apply it specifically to the fictional magic and uh, you know sensitive uh, readers problem, this is something uh, that we need to apply wherever we are uh, with, uh, with particular discernment because every situation is going to be different. But I think I can maybe, you know, as we draw to a close here, maybe lay out this very brief uh, fictional scenario. Let's say that I enjoy a fantasy series that has a, a magic system in there uh, that's based in a, a, a natural law. Uh, so this is not a story with spirits or ghosts or weird creatures. Instead, it's set in an imaginary world where magic is like a natural law. You know, in this world, if you put parts together and make an engine, that would seem like magic to this world. Uh, in, in this fictional world, uh, you could say the right words and, you know, suddenly there's a thunderstorm. Uh, let's say that my friends read this books and, and I have a friend who then reads, reads the book and is, is uncomfortable with content. Like, I, I don't know if, I don't know if I should read that. And I don't know if you should read that. You know, I think that that may be the magic that God condemns in passages like Deuteronomy 18. Well, at that point, I have a choice. Am I going to judge that person as if they're just trying to rule me with their offense? That would depend on, has this person done this before? Do they have a leadership role in the church? Are they trying to make me stop? Or are they just bringing it up for conversation? You know, Best if you can do this in person, by the way, because if it's just a text or comment in a comment section somewhere, that uh, you can maybe misjudge the attitude that person has. And I've done this before <laughs> in several discussions, and I'm trying not to. In this case, in this scenario, I would want to know, does this person, does my friend have real associations with idols? Uh, did this person come from an occult background? You know, uh, did he or she uh, worship idols in the past or get into charms or witchcraft or necromancy or any of the stuff that God has forbidden? Does that backstory make them legitimately sensitive in this area so that they think that fictional magic equals occult magic? Or is this a person who didn't grow up with this stuff, but has been taught that this stuff is the same as that stuff? And so they, they think that that teaching is biblical teaching. And maybe they are more worried about, uh, maybe they are that type of person uh, who, for whatever reason, uh, is just worried about the risk that someone out there in the future, in uh, the, uh, the abstract, might be tempted. The, the former accounts where the Christian has a backstory in the occult that uh, warrants a little bit more sensitivity. If someone is worried about the risk of the someone, then I would ask, okay, well, is that person in the room? Is this a real scenario we need to worry about? Uh, but let's try to be aware of the, those actual real world risks rather than the fantasy weaker brother out there somewhere. We are trying to stick with reality here. So in this case, hey, you the fantasy fan, you get to talk about, okay, well, let's not imagine that person out there somewhere. Let's talk about the real world. Let's avoid fantasy and stick with the real world. 
uh, it's still tricky. I mean, you you don't know uh, whether you know the account of you re- reading this book. You don't know where that's going to go. Uh, who's going to say what about you? And so you're not in full control about whether or not other Christians think that you're sinning by enjoying this series. Uh, but that is the case, though, with anyone who has any kind of leadership role, uh, who is uh, trying to help people see that what you enjoy can actually be a means of glorifying God. I remember, too, uh, Jesus and the apostles also had their teachings abused by folks who wanted to sin. But it's important to get that message out there, though. There's a Latin phrase I use sometimes. Uh, We'll include that in the show notes if you want to spell it right. I have to look it up. (laughs) I have to look up the spelling every time I use it. Abusus non tollet usum. Abuse does not disqualify proper use. If you're showing and telling about the proper use, then chances are you may be able to help some genuine weaker brothers at least understand why you enjoy that thing. And then maybe even uh, you challenge some of those people who are trying to manipulate with a false religious tradition uh, to think differently about the false judgments that that they're making. Well, maybe a story from my own life would be helpful here too, Stephen. We talked last episode about, you know, what was the first fantasy novel you read? And it was the uh, Sword of Shannara series and then the Dragonlance series and then a bunch of other ones I read like that uh, throughout my adolescence. And I enjoyed those books like like any other genre and like any other reader. It was just kind of normal. It was just fun. But at some point, I personally fell into a lot of new age mysticism. I'm just going to use that phrase really broadly. This is probably a whole other episode about my story there. And so then I started picking up fantasy books and and really nonfiction about new age stuff, but out of like a confirmation bias. Like I already believed this stuff and I just wanted to reinforce it. I just really latched on to a lot of the kind of popular beliefs about people having, you know, powers beyond just, you know, the sixth sense kind of stuff. And, uh, man, I, I went through a really dark period where that, that kind of stuff, uh, overtook my thinking and overtook a lot of clear thinking. Um, but then I became a Christian later in high school. And a couple years later I came across, I was just reading acts and acts 19, 19, it says, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated the value and it was 50,000 pieces of silver, whatever that translates to today. And this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. So I just was like, okay, I guess it's pretty simple. So I just closed my Bible. I gathered up all those, um, not necessarily the fantasy books, but uh, some of them, but more so the teaching books, uh, Mm. things that were teaching me about you know, how to experience magic in the real world, basically. And I just put all those in a garbage bag and threw them away. Good, good. Yeah. And then there was a time after that where I just didn't want to read fantasy fiction. There were certain stories that I just was like, this is too real to things that I encountered in the real world, especially things with psychic powers, uh, possession, uh, automatic handwriting. Yeah, that's a meat sacrifice to idols for you then. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, I unfortunately had real encounters with this stuff in the real world. And so uh, even now, there's there's stories I'm like, this is a little too close to home, a little too close to reality. But, you know, the honest truth is most fantasy is not that way. You kind of have to look for it. Something I read recently was The Magician's Nephew. I just finished that. That was a fantastic book. You know, there's obviously 
magic going on in that. I mean, it's about the magician. Uh, there's magic rings. There's uh, even Aslan doing the, you know, the deep magic, creating the world. There's Jadis who has the magic word that destroys things. Uh, there's magic trees. There's all kinds of magic, but you know, it's all kind of, it's obviously fictional magic. Oh, I love the magician's nephew. And I'm very glad that you were able to enjoy that. Uh, even though you started with the sixth uh, Chronicle of Narnia there uh, instead of the first, which is the line in which in the wardrobe <laughs> refer to our previous episode about the controversy over the publication versus chronological order. Uh, that really is the preference thing, though. I would be wrong to impose my preference on you in anything other than this jocular manner. And Zach, I'm reminded too of what you said earlier about the fact that the categories of weaker brother and stronger brother are constantly shifting for a person. You know, you're not living in three dimensions where you're stuck with that label lifelong. No stronger brother started that way. We all have these sin trigger points and it can only help us to be open about them. But we could not have this discussion now if you hadn't gone through that process then of getting rid of that stuff, the meat sacrificed to idols books about occult practice. I would be wrong to come to you then and say, hey, it's cool. That stuff is not actually the source of sin. Sin comes from the heart. I think you just hang on to that stuff. No, you needed to get rid of that stuff, at least at the time. Uh, but. The problem there, of course, is that even that weakness, even that in that's weakness and some for some people, it can become an excuse uh, to indulge in the flesh. And there are biblical warnings against hanging on to stuff that tempts you to sin. And there's also warnings about rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch in Colossians 2.21. Sin does come from the heart, not from the thing, but also be aware that Jesus warns us to avoid even the good things that tempt us. Because of those different biblical truths, that affects biblical Christians who are fantasy fans. So we need to talk about these things openly, not just in podcasts, but in real life environments, your church or your family, your class, whatever. Let's stay accountable to one another as we read and enjoy and even create these stories. Be aware of the backstories of your friends and what they're tempted by, uh, what they're strong in, and let's keep growing. If you, even listening now, feel uncertain about this magic stuff like maybe these guys are just making special excuses because they really like harry potter and they kind of maybe sort of secretly want to sin like well i would challenge you there to act charitably like zach was saying earlier but if it's more of a sensitivity to like well maybe they can do it but i can't like do not let anyone come along and say oh you're a legalist you're bad you're weak like that's wrong of anyone to do to you just as wrong as it would be for a weaker brother to try to control everybody. Paul, the apostle Paul taught about all this out loud. He didn't take the super Christians, the strong Christians in the back room and tell them to be nice to the little guys. He was saying it in a letter to be read aloud to the congregations. Uh, we don't want to have this secret knowledge approach. In fact, that's how you get into occult thinking and some kind of Gnostic impulse of the secret wisdom that only the super Christians can get. We do need to learn from those stronger Christians and the stronger Christians need to care for the Christians who are truly sensitive of consciences. Uh, if the stronger Christians are not tempted while enjoying the fictional magic then the weaker Christians need to ask them, Hey, what's your secret? What's your secret? Stronger Christians don't hang on to the secret sauce recipe, share it, share how you got there. If you don't know how you got there, think about it and then put it together and share any tips 
for pursuing holiness that the, that the needier or newer Christians need. And as always, we need to keep studying the ultimate purpose for these stories, whether or not they have fictional magic. It's not just to teach people. It's not just to evangelize people, but their purpose is to help us glorify God in Christ. Well, today we have another special segment of Stranger Than Fantastical Fiction. And here's the headline. A guy in a jetpack was spotted again by airliners descending into LAX. Wait, this is the second headline? This This isn't a rerun? Okay, wow. Right. So, you know, jetpacks are so hot right now, apparently. Last time we talked about a jetpack medic that could fly up a mountain. And that was uh, over in Europe. But now there is a jetpack guy in L.A. who for the second time, if assuming this is the same person, is flying around those airplanes that are coming into land. And uh, a few weeks ago, he was seen at about 3,000 feet. And now now he's all the way up at 6,000 feet, which is just insane. And all these airplanes, uh, China Airlines uh, flight more recently spotted him. It was about seven miles northwest of LA and you know, there's, you, you, you can go to the article in the show notes and you can actually listen to the tower uh, of LAX and these airplanes talking about there's a guy flying around on a jetpack. What in the world? So is, is Iron Man happening? You know, is, uh, you know, where, where is all this going? Like why are jetpacks so, so in right now? I never thought I'd be able to fill that uh, weird square in my 2020 apocalypse bingo card. (laughs) UFH, unidentified flying human. It's not (laughs) like you can send a fighter jet after him. He's a human being. (laughs) Knock him spinning into the air. Surely these guys are equipped with parachutes or something, especially if they're going to ascend to 6,000 feet. That's crazy. And the weird thing about this is that is totally restricted airspace. Okay, so this is not like uh, an official demonstration or anything like that. Wh- whoever this person is, is like a rogue person. So then that really gets you wondering like, what is happening? Well, he'll serve some time, but he's going to get a great movie deal once he gets out. <laughs> That's just, I mean, wow. And the, I'm, you don't even have laws that cover this sort of thing other than restricted airspace. Like, is there a loophole there? Restricted airspace is restricted to like aerial traffic. And then a person in a jetpack can say, I'm not traffic. I'm just a person. But I mean, surely they, they've allowed for like people doing stunts with balloons and lawn chairs and things like that, because that, that sort of thing has happened. Wow. Nah, speaking of fictional magic and real magic, like the stuff like this does tend to blur the lines. Uh, similarly too, uh, in a more official capacity, there's a tweet just a few days ago for the Naval Institute. And it says, quote, fun fact Friday, the Royal Navy has been testing jet suit assault teams to determine if the Iron Man-like suits could be used to rapidly swarm and board ships. U.S. Special Operations Command is also evaluating a jetpack that can reach speeds of more than 200 miles per hour. We'll have that tweet linked in the show notes. There's a wondrous video uh, showing uh, naval personnel uh, very slowly, cautiously lifting off in actual dadgum jetpacks. Uh, from one speeding boat uh, and then landing onto a larger ship that's traveling at about the same speed and then going back and forth to test this. It truly is a sight to behold, and it's another little instance of God's grace being reflected in the world and the fact that it probably would not have even thought to make jetpacks or test them if it had not been for uh, even older science fiction with jetpacked heroes and 
like the uh, the Rocketeer movie, the Rocketeer. And things oh, like I that. Love, that well, the Rocket, well, yeah. the Rocket. They just need that awesome helmet uh, and uh, and kind of that le- le- leather jacket from the forties uh, to complete the picture. Well, we're quickly approaching the election season, and so to any politicians listening, I am a single issue voter. Who is going to give me a jetpack? Who is going to democratize the jetpack and not just make it a uh, you know a medical professional or a military thing, but a, just an everyday person thing? Because Man, I really want a jetpack. But let's uh, close out here with our fantastic fan segment. We got a letter from Emery Alexander, who said, quote, I love the podcast. I'm sure many of your listeners are aspiring authors like me and would probably really appreciate a Publishing for Dummies episode. I know I would love to hear about each step in the process from starting to write all the way to seeing your book on a shelf, including all the steps in the editing process to having an agent or not, how to get paid. Pros and cons of traditional versus self-publishing, as well as how to self-publish, writing software you recommend, etc. I know that's not just about fantasy, but you could throw in something about what makes the fantasy market especially challenging or rewarding. Just a thought, keep up the great work, end quote. Well, thanks, Emery, for writing us in. Stephen, what do you think about uh, Emery's request here? Well, my first response is I want to explain why we're not a, a, a publishing industry writing craft to development, uh, you know, journey toward publication show. We see that there's a lot of those types of communications out there already. Uh, and a lot of groups uh, particularly realm makers where you can go and join and should join in order to learn all of these things from people who've been there and who have developed resources about this. If we piled on, uh, we would be just another voice in a very crowded room. But we didn't see that there were a whole lot of podcasts out there that were specifically exploring uh, issues like this one here uh, from a biblical meets imagination perspective. That's something that the Lorehaven's been doing for a while and uh, building off of the mission of the the original blog that started in the mid-2000s. So I think we're going to keep that focus on the fans, but if you do want to get into more of the craft development and the publication journey and all that stuff, uh, you definitely need to go to realmmakers.com or join their new network, uh, which is the Realmsphere, and we'll have those links in the show notes. And they didn't pay for this plug here. Uh, It's simply where we want here on Fantastical Truth to send anybody who wants to go further in that direction of making stories, uh, not just enjoying uh, the stories as a fan. I mean, not everyone who is a fan is a writer, but every writer is a fan. So if we want to, even from a writing creative perspective, help find and build a greater audience for these kinds of stories, then you have got to speak first to the fans and not just talk about being a creator all the time. But there's plenty of places where you can talk about that. Uh, In addition, uh, listeners, like I, I only just recently got published. Like my first book is nonfiction, The Pop Culture Parent, and it was published with two co-authors and a traditional publisher. So right now I'm at best a one hit wonder. So I'm not even an expert on all of these things. Uh, If we tried to talk about this, uh, we'd be out of our depth and we'd probably be plagiarizing from the folks who do it so much better. Now we will link as well to the best podcasts we've found about this, like the Christian publishing show and novel marketing. Those are two really good podcasts and the helping writers become authors. Next on Fantastical Truth, we will very cautiously sneak down the castle wall, sneak into the crypt, and then steal up to the coffin and pull aside that heavy lid. And we were going to stare down into the unblinking, evil, hostile 
fanged face of the undead Count Dracula. Uh, This is now one of my favorite stories, the original Bram Stoker horror novel. We're going to explore how Dracula has been turned into a cartoon and kind of lost the meaning of the original book uh, with a friend of mine, Jeffrey Ryder, who is now a Bram Stoker expert and knows a lot more about this than I do. I learned a lot from our interview, and I can't wait to share that with you as we seek to defeat vampires by throwing the light upon them and make sure to avoid occult magic, even as we enjoy fictional magic for the glory of Christ and continue to seek and find fantastical truth. 